Welcome to the Neural Network. I'm Nick, neuroscientist, neurophysiologist out at the Center for Integrative Brain Research at Seattle Children's. And today with me, I have Zach again. Hello, Zach. Hello. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. So I hear that you've been interested in neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. I have. I have read a little bit, mostly Wikipedia and some paper from Harvard. Um, but Paper from Harvard? Well, it was like an article. I don't want to call it a paper, but oh. it was an article from Harvard, and it was super interesting. What was it so, talking about? Like invasive, you said the word a little bit ago, um, neuromodulation devices, perhaps? Oh, extrinsic neuromodulation. There we go. So, yeah, using uh, needles or like devices that are implanted to send electrical or magnetic signals to block or excite certain areas. Ah, so external stimulation devices. Yeah. For like pain or one of them was for epilepsy that worked kind of like a pacemaker. So if you're mid-seizure, it will send signals to stop it. I didn't get too far into that. but Electrical stimulation? I think so. Sounds right. One of the many different uh, neuromodulatory devices that can be used for research or for therapeutic use. It was pretty interesting though. Like an impl implant in your spine? And it just lives there. And electrical implant, I'm assuming? I think so, yeah. Oh. But they had electrical and magnetic and something else. There was, for a while, there was a, I think it might have been Philips, the company that was doing, it might not have been Philips, so don't quote me on that, but they were doing a, like a breathe um, campaign thing where they were doing research on a device that could be implanted into the brainstem, into the hypoglossal motor nucleus. Or, what does that control? Uh, tongue movement. Okay. Um, or no, it didn't. It didn't go onto the hypoglossal motor nucleus, but it went onto the hypoglossal nerve. Okay. So, which is one of the cranial nerves that comes from the hypoglossal nucleus. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was supposed to be used for sleep apnea. And so the idea was that if a patient, because one of the, so with sleep apnea, you can either have an obstructive apnea or you can have a central apnea. And so for an obstructive apnea, like when you fall asleep. If your tongue falls back or your upper airway collapses, then you have an obstruction to airflow. So that's an obstructive sleep apnea, which is like the majority of the cases. So that's when you have to wear the CPAP machine, yeah, yeah, which is just like continuous positive airway pressure, mm -hmm. CPAP. And, uh, and so it, yeah, that just like blows air down your throat. So that way it can't collapse because it's always being forced open with air, Okay, which is why people wake up and they have the most wicked gas that's ever conceived because the air just keeps going so like you wake up and you're a balloon yeah because if you know if if it's not blowing down your airway it can also go into your stomach and so you can wake up like a blimp don't people drool a lot when they have a cpap on oh i don't know i mean i have a couple of friends that have cpaps and they always talk about the like mask getting filled with drool when they wake up and it drives them crazy oh probably it sounds horrible sounds thank god i don't have sleep apnea yeah it's a it's a tough disease it's tough to study too but anyways um what the implantable device was was that it, every time that it would sense that there was laxity in the function of the nerve which would then lead to because every time that the hypoglossal neurons the hypoglossal nucleus neurons fire it protrudes the tongue, so it gets the tongue out of the way. Mm -hmm. So if you stimulate the hypoglossal nerve, you stick your tongue out, more or less. 
and uh and so and you can't control that it's just reflexive no you can control it if i want to stick my tongue out i can no but i mean with the implant oh it would force your tongue out yeah like you couldn't hold it back that'd be kind of cool if it had its own little like button <laughs> just like like one of those party popper things that you blow <laughs> it just pops out <laughs> you just that'd got a little sweet. button in your pocket and just stick your tongue out for you whenever you want that'd be sweet yeah no, uh, not that I know of, but I'm sure that could be implemented in the beta version. Hmm. But the idea was that any time that the tongue would slip back, then it would turn on. And it would stimulate the hypoglossal nerve. And it would push your tongue out of the way. So that way you didn't die of an apnea. Wow. So, so this was just an implant versus having to use a CPAP. Yeah. Sounds more convenient. Yeah. I mean, I'd the, I, the other thing is that like now you have a electrical device that stimulates your nerves. Can you take the device out, like during the day? Could you just put it in when you sleep and then take it off? No. Well, it's always in there. It's below the skin, though, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the things that we run into in the lab. It's hard to put the brain back in once you take the brain out. Mm-hmm. And similarly for that, like once you access the nervous system, it's hard to take it back out without there being ramifications. Okay. But I don't know. It was kind of cool. So that's a uh, external neuromodulatory electrical device. But electrical stim has been always used for uh, modulating neural activity. I mean, we use it in the lab all the time. Like I use it for measuring um, what happens when you recruit certain neural networks. So like if I want to entrain a network or something, so or if I want to stimulate a part of the brain and see what it does, you can literally just stick an electrode down in there mm-hmm. that just creates a current, an electrical current. And then you can just zap the neurons because neurons primarily run off of like electrical activity. And so you can somewhat just override the system by just zapping them, which just excites them. And then they start to do their action potential thing. You can also fry it if you go a little bit too much. Like I I know I I took a brain out one time and I was doing some electrical stimulations, um, trying to see the refractory period of a network. So basically if you take a neural network, a bunch of neurons that are all together and they tend to fire synchronously. So all the neurons just go like kaboom at the Mm -hmm. same time. But when they all go kaboom at the same time, then it needs a reloading phase because the neurons go into hyperpolarization. So every time that a neuron depolarizes or it sends out its signal, it goes pop, the voltage of the neuron goes up. And then when the voltage of the neuron goes up, it opens up a bunch of voltage-gated channels that then allow for cations or, or positive ions to flow back out. And then those, those ions, those ion channels open and close very slowly. And so there's a period where you have channels that are open that are just letting ions flood out. But, um, and because of that, there's different stages of refractory period where if you go to stimulate the nerve again, then it won't elicit a response that time. So the neuron has to have some time in order to recharge before you can make it go pop again. But when you extrapolate that out into a neural network, now all the neurons within the network pop at the same time. And so if this network is known for releasing like bursts, for example, so this like large scale electrical activity that comes from all the neurons within a neural network, it'll burst and it'll recruit some sort of motor pattern and then it has to recharge again, essentially, before it can be stimulated again. So you can go in with an electrical recording, and you can stimulate at different times following a burst from that network. 
to see what the refractory period is of the network. And you can see how different neuromodulatory conditions can affect the state of that network to alter the amount of time it takes for it to be recruited again. Okay. So that's that's where the neuromodulators start to get a little bit weird. And so it's probably a, a good segue, though, to talk about the differences between neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. Yeah, because I, when I was reading that paper, it was pretty confusing because they talked about it in the electrical sense, magnetic, and then also for use of medication, how you can you know, give medication through these external devices and use it was something like one three hundredth of a normal oral dose and it provided quicker pain relief more effective pain relief and you didn't have to use nearly as much oh see those are those are pharmaceutical or different modalities of modulating neural activity but i'm talking about the actual neuromodulators in your brain okay like serotonin and dopamine and acetylcholine and all these different things okay what's acetylcholine used for it's a neurotransmitter or a neuromodulator. And what does it control? Uh, it controls different areas of the brain that are receptive to acetylcholine. But can we dive a little bit here? Or do I have to <laughs> Google this? Because I'm thinking serotonin is like the feel-good molecule, right? Serotonin can be a feel-good molecule. Okay. If it activates the areas of the brain that make you feel good. Okay. So that's where it's sort of... In the, this is something that I try to dispel a lot, mainly for my own gratitude, I guess, or my own gratification. Your ego. My ego. There we go. Yeah. Let's just be honest. Too much serotonin sometimes. At least there's no ego lifting in the gym. That is fair. You don't want to hurt I yourself. I do a lot of very light weights. Do you? Yeah. You made fun of me for doing bench press with like 45 pounds. I did. But I've also bench seen with 40, you. but like dumbbells that were 45 pounds. I've also seen you borderline destroy yourself on a deadlift though and i have stories about your deadlifts so we'll, that's another day but yeah we'll talk about fitness someday because we were both really fat yeah actually i was pushing 300 i was 315 i saw a picture of you when i was trying to find that picture of the like the marine picture mm-hmm. and i didn't realize how fat you were you were pretty chubby oh i was huge actually can i just segue really quick into that uh so what made me lose weight was when i went to the doctor's office one time he was basically like yeah you're like morbidly obese other than that you're totally healthy like your organs are good your heart's good everything's good you're just morbidly obese (laughs) and hearing that directly i was like man something's got to change but i didn't change anything and then my sister was a cheerleader and she had a lot of pretty friends and my mom's ex-husband built this like garage go-kart it was a really shitty little thing go-kart go-kart okay like he was a mechanic and he built this little go-kart out of like a stupid frame anyways my stepbrother at the time who was like maybe a buck 40 dripping wet got on just took off immediately and we lived in the cul-de-sac at like the bottom of a small incline like a eight percent grade top so it was like a major run until you weren't fat anymore no i got on the go-kart and i tried to go up the same hill and the go-kart didn't move (laughs) at all it rolled backwards and everybody (laughs) laughed at me and i was like all right something's got to change and then i lost like 100 pounds in like eight months so in my case, it worked. Everybody's got to have that motivation, you know? Anyways. Some neuromodulators changed in your brain. Something changed, but the brain is plastic, so. The brain is I very plastic. Formed new habits, and they stuck. Yeah. And here I am. 
Like, Here we are. You know, 180. Anyways. Anyways. That was a good story, though. Good story. Neuromodulators. There we go. And neurotransmitters. Yep. Neurotransmitters can be neuromodulators. And neuromodulators can be neurotransmitters. Oh, that's one of these They're things. the same molecule. Okay. So, like, if we talk about dopamine, serotonin, uh, acetylcholine, GABA, glycine, glutamate, these are all neurochemicals that are synthesized and released by neurons. And so they're, they're essentially the, the medium by which communication is transmitted through a chemical means. Because neurons can either transmit signals electrically. There are these things called gap junctions. And that's where the actual electro, electrical, current, electrical current travels from one neuron directly to the other neuron. But what we primarily learn about is neurochemical signaling, which is where a neuron, let's say, synthesizes serotonin, and it releases that serotonin from its axon, and it gets picked up by the next neuron on mm-hmm. its receptors. And the same neurochemical can then work as a neurotransmitter or as a neuromodulator. And if it works as a neurotransmitter, it's typically bound. So the, the neurochemical is released, it binds to its receptor. And if that receptor is what's called an ionotropic receptor, meaning that the receptor itself is directly linked to an ion channel. So the, the neurochemical binds to the receptor, it opens up an ion channel, ions can then flow into the cell, then it's a neurotransmitter. But if it binds to a different receptor, one that's usually called metabotropic receptors, so instead of being bound directly to an ion channel for metabotropic receptors, when the neurochemical binds to that receptor, it triggers a secondary messenger cascade within the cell to then open up an ion channel somewhere else farther off in the cell. And so it has a little bit more of a slower response. I mean, we're still talking very fast responses here, but like an ionotropic receptor is essentially instant Mm -hmm. and a metabotropic receptor is a little bit slower. And so, and it has somewhat of a less dramatic effect, I guess you could say. So when we talk about a neurochemical being a neuromodulator, it has more of an influence on the neuron's ability to be excited. Whereas the neurotransmitter directly excites the neuron. So the neuromodulators, you can think of it almost like a gain system. Mm-hmm. So like you can, you can say you can make the neuron closer to its threshold for firing. Whereas a neurotransmitter is just going to like pop, shove it right to the point of firing. Okay. So all of the neurotransmitters can be neuromodulators and all the neuromodulators can be neurotransmitters because they're the same molecule. They're all neurochemicals. Mm-hmm. And so like it gets a little bit confusing sometimes when the names get jumbled up. And a lot of times we just refer to neurotransmitters as neuromodulators just to be safe mm-hmm. because I think it's probably, I like using the word neuromodulator better than neurotransmitter because all of the neurons like they open up channels, which then change the flux of cations and anions in and out of the cell, which then change how electrically charged it is. And it's only once you reach a critical threshold that you actually get a spike or an action potential from the cell. So theoretically, they're all kind of neuromodulators. But this is where it feeds into, like you were talking about, serotonin being the feel-good 
neurochemical. So like serotonin is produced in different brain regions, primarily in the brainstem, in these regions called the medullary raffae. And there's a few different flavors of them. Sounds French. I don't know if it is or not. Sounds like it. It could be. Anyways, continue. Anyway, so there's like a few different flavors. There's the Raffae Magnus Obscurus. The Ra- there's the Raffae Magnus, the Raffae Obscurus, the Raffae Pallidus, and the... Um, uh, Come on. Why am I blanking on that one? You got this. Uh, it's right there at the tip of the tongue. Dorsal Raffae. Boom. Got it. See? I didn't even... You can justify. I didn't even look it up. No, he didn't look it up. That was just pure teamwork. That was pure teamwork. I did, them in, I did them in weird order. Usually I go from bottom to top. But So when you hear that, you know, the majority of your your serotonin is produced in your gut, like your gut produces a lot of serotonin, but that serotonin doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so it doesn't go into the brain. So you don't feel serotonin? From, from your, your gut. gut, no. So when, I, when you hear someone say, like, the majority of the serotonin is made in your gut and so what you eat changes the serotonin which changes your mood is not correct it's not correct no the serotonin in your brain comes from your brain from the medullary raffae it doesn't come from your gut okay those are two distinct pools of serotonin so what is the serotonin used for if it's made in your gut it can be used for peripheral actions where there are serotonin receptors like what there's serotonin receptors in your in your lungs, for example, mm-hmm. like to change lung function, to trigger immune or inflammatory processes. There's serotonin receptors all over the place. So take that for what it's worth. Okay. So now if we talk about a neural network, what's your favorite neural network? I have no idea. It's the podcast, right? The neural network. The neural network is my favorite neural network. <laughs> or we could dive into mushrooms. It, yeah, the dendrites <laughs> talked about of the fungi. world. <laughs> uh, I don't know, though. I don't know what constitutes a neural network. A group of cells that tend to work together. That could mean a million different things. Yeah. So let's just say we'll pick the... Let's just pick... Let's pick an arbitrary neural network. Let's make one up. So in a neural network, let's take like 500 cells. Got it. And let's put them together. All of those cells have their own individual identity to an extent. They all have different profiles of receptors on them, and they're all responsive to different neurochemicals. So some of the neurons are only responsive to serotonin. Some of them are only responsive to glutamate. Some of them are responsive to both. Some of them are only responsive to acetylcholine. You see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. If we look at each individual neuronal property, We can isolate a single neuron within that network, and we can use a technique called patch clamping, which just means that we record the activity of one neuron. So we go in with a really fine pipette tip, and we poke the the membrane of the neuron, and then we record from it. We can also use like a large bore pipette, so we can just take the same needle and we can just blunt it off, and we can just stab it over the the entire neural network and listen to all 500 cells at the same time. And when we look at the effects of the neuromodulators within a single neural network, this is where we have to define the level that we're reading the neural information from. So if we're looking at a single neuron, we can look at the change in voltage 
of that neuron? Is it becoming more positively or more negatively charged? Which is going to be influenced by the neuromodulators and the neurotransmitters that are bombarding it at any one time. But if we look at the, you know, this neuron is working in cooperation with all the other neurons within the network. Like if I stimulate that one single neuron within the neural network, it's not going to do anything. Like it'll spike for sure, but it's not like you're going to recruit a, a behavioral response. You need the whole neural network to fire at the same time in order to get that response. And you're just reading all of this from a graph, right? Yeah. Basically. Okay. Yeah. That sounds tough. Yeah. So like, like if you want the respiratory network to fire, if you, if I stimulate a single neuron within the pre-Botzinger complex in the brainstem, mm -hmm. which is what initiates the pattern to recruit the diaphragm eventually. If I stimulate a single neuron, it's not going to do anything. But if I stimulate all 600 or so neurons at the same time, then you're going to get a breath. And so all of those neurons are displaying their own different phenotypic activities, and they're all displaying their own different genetic makeups, which dictates which receptors are on there. And there's every neural network for the most part is receiving input from an enormous amount of different areas in the brain. And so you have this one singular neural network and you have all of these different things that are coming in to feed it information. How am I feeling? What's my anxiety? What level of CO2 do I have in my body? What oxygen do I have in my body? Do I want to manually breathe? Like they're all feeding in to influence the behavior of that network. And so rather than having a complete neurotransmitter-driven system where it's like a one-to-one -one type of action, you can have modulatory input. So we can say that the network under a certain state of excitability uh, is being flooded with more serotonin, let's say. And that serotonin flooding on the neurons doesn't necessarily have a direct action per se, but it increases the likelihood that all of those neurons are going to fire by themselves. So if a different neurotransmitter comes through and now that neural network is being flooded with serotonin versus before, there's a greater likelihood that that network is going to fire. And so you're going to breathe faster because there's already an intrinsic, you know, in, in this case, there's like an intrinsic pacemaker like activity going on within the network to make sure that all of the network, all of the cells fire. But now we just take, so it's just going pop, 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 pop. But every time that it initiates that signal to drive the pop, it's like a ramp up. So it goes whoop, pop, whoop, pop. Mm -hmm. But when that network is now flooded with serotonin, for example, let's just say, which is typically excitatory, at least in this region of the brain that I'm referring to, it has less of a ramp that it needs to go up to in order to pop. So instead of going whoop, pop, whoop, pop, it'll just go whoop, pop, whoop, pop, whoop, pop. And so it goes much faster. Okay. And so you can see where all of the different brain regions sort of send their input into the network at any given time to just influence its activity. And it just creates this entire environment, this little ecosystem within the network. And we call it its neuromodulatory milieu. Wow. Which I don't know. Do you know what milieu stands for? I mean, I know the concept of it. It's like the makeup of everything. I would say Milwaukee University, personally, but... That's what popped up on my Google when I looked it up. A person's social environment is the milieu. Okay. So, 
it's its own neuromodulatory milieu. Wow. And you can you can measure it. So like if we stick a microdialysis probe, so dialysis essentially you're delivering something without changing the volume. Mm-hmm. So dialysis is just the action of moving down a concentration gradient basically. Yeah. So from high concentration to low concentration. So you can put a dialysis probe down into that network that you want to sample from and you can just dialyze in like cerebral spinal fluid just blank cerebral spinal fluid. So there's no neuromodulators in there. Mm-hmm. And when it goes down, then since the neuromodulators are at a higher concentration in that network, then they dialyze into the solution and then you collect that solution that's coming out. And so you can then take that fluid and you can run an assay on it to see how much at any given time, how much serotonin there is and glutamate and GABA and glycine and all these different neuromodulators and you can see how the state of the excitability or the state of the neuromodulators is changing over time. And so you can see like in sleep, you can see the serotonin ramp down in most areas of the brain. And you can see GABA and glycine start to increase. Is that just because serotonin is not needed for sleep? Uh, it's So the brain like self-regulates? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the primary neurotransmitters involved in arousal not the arousal that you're thinking of because I see that smirk on your face, but it's arousal such as like sleep wake state. Yeah. So like serotonin is highest when you're really awake and it starts to to ramp down as you go to sleep and obviously other neuromodulators as well, but that's just one that everyone's heard of serotonin because I love it. So does uh, serotonin change? I guess it's a amount based on what sleep cycle you're in, like REM, light, deep sleep? Are there different levels for each stage? Yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting question, too, because it's so that gets into the different states, neural network states. Mm-hmm. And so we always talk about things being state-dependent, which is like my whole line of research is understanding the state dependency of neural networks. Mm-hmm. So like, and and we do it mainly for like contextual drug overdoses. So like when you're in a novel environment, you're much more likely to overdose on a drug. So if I gave you the same dose of fentanyl when you're at home where you normally do fentanyl, you're probably not going to overdose. But if I gave you that exact same dose, if you're at a party that you've never been to, you're probably going to overdose. Why is that? Because your brain's in a different state. Different neuromodulatory milieu makes it more likely to be vulnerable to the drug. Wow. It's kind of cool, huh? That is super cool, actually. Yeah. That's why it sometimes can take less alcohol in a novel environment to feel drunk mm. than it would when you're sitting at home or vice versa, depending on the situation. It's yeah. kind of like if I gave you morphine or something after you finished, or if I gave you morphine while you're running a marathon, mm-hmm. it's probably going to have less of an effect than if you're just chilling on the couch. Yeah. Because you're at a more heightened excitability state, and it has to overcome that excitability before it can exert, you know, its effects. Wow. So that's kind of cool. That makes sense, though. It's like when you're around new people and you start drinking, and you feel like you're, you know, getting buzzed off of like one or two drinks. But when you're just hanging out with your friends, you feel like you can kill, kill a bear, kill a bear, <laughs> and you feel that way up until like beer number twelve. Twelve. Why well, don't case do that. races? Huh? But yeah. You know. Anyways, 
So, I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of the general concept. It's kind of a long rant, but it was a long rant. It's worth it though. It was worth it because it's worth understanding that part of the nervous system. Yeah. And so like, well, I'm not a big fan of just like running down to the supplement store and buying some, you know, precursor to some neurotransmitter. Like you can buy tyrosine, which is what like dopamine and norepinephrine are made from. And theoretically, if you're increasing your concentration of tyrosine, you can make more dopamine and norepinephrine, but you probably have enough to make it already. So you probably don't need it. Okay. And things like uh, dopamine, serotonin, all of those, they all, the more you get, the more receptors you have to make, right? I can. If That's you get like some the whole point of SSRIs, right? What's that? That's the whole point of SSRIs. Uh, SSRIs just increase the concentration of serotonin. I thought that it blocked off certain receptors. So that way you're more like capable of processing it. It blocks off the reuptake receptors. So there's, there's autoregulatory receptors and transporters within each neuron. So like if it, a neuron is releasing serotonin, somehow that serotonin has to like leave. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just going to continually keep signaling. Yeah. And so there's transporters that transport it back into the neuron. And so the serotonin goes out, it has its effects and then it goes back through the transporter and then it leaves and it goes back into the neuron. But with an SSRI, which is like a serotonin specific reuptake inhibitor, it inhibits that reuptake. And so the serotonin goes into the synapse, but it can't go back out. So it just stays in the synapse. So the, the concentration of serotonin at any given time is higher within a single synapse. And so if it's in a brain region that is, is important for making you feel good, then you'll feel better. You know, if it's in a brain region that is not involved in that, or it's involved in something else, like an SSRI, like fluoxetine, for example, like it can increase your breathing. Is that a specific medication? Yeah. Fluoxetine is a SSRI medication. Okay. It's just, it's used a lot in research for, cause it's pretty specific for, well, nothing is super specific when it comes to fluoxetine, but, but for the, for the most part, it, it's a serotonin, it's an SSRI. Okay. And, uh, but if like, if I locally apply fluoxetine into the respiratory network, then it's not going to make you feel good. Like it would if it was in different regions of the cortex that control your um, conscious perception of the world. It'll just make you breathe more. And actually, you can like increase the threshold or you can decrease the threshold for epilepsy, for example, by some SSRI drugs. So it's because it's it's just increasing the amount of serotonin in all synapses that release it. And so since serotonin is excitatory, like there's also neural networks in the brain that let's say don't have a dysfunction in the serotonin, uh, signaling system. And now you've dumped an SSRI in to make you feel better. Well, those other networks are also getting the effect. And so if there's a network that's sort of close to the threshold for an epileptic phenomenon Mm -hmm. where it's just like hyper excited, just like going nuts, then it'll just increase the risk for that. Wow. Yeah. Nuts. Nuts. 
So that's the the neuromodulator rant, I guess. But it, it kind of flips how you look sometimes at different drugs and how you look at different areas of the brain and how they work. Yeah. It's not always just a one-to-one situation. Mm-hmm. It's always this balance between the intrinsic properties of the neurons that make up the network and the, in, the, the neuromodulators that are flooding it at any given time. Wow. You know? So there's no way to... Um go under some sort of imaging to see what areas of the brain you know aren't producing the serotonin in that way like so if you wanted to use an ssri for depression right that's what it's commonly used for um there's no way to see what area of your brain is lacking in serotonin oh yeah there you can figure that out can you do it without probing though uh yeah kind of is there any way to target those specific areas of the brain? In humans? Yeah. There's probably some experimental things going on to do it. I mean, okay. you can certainly... There's there's certain technologies that are available, that are starting to become available, that are targeting specific cell groups. So let's say that the serotonin neurons that you want to target also express a different, unique transcription factor then you could perhaps create something virally mediated that might be able to target those in particular. But there's not always unique targets. You know, so like the different lineages of neurons within the brain can express different transcription factors based on, I mean, that's it's just developmental biology that determines the the expression of the transcription factors, but then they dictate which receptors and, and things like that are expressed on the neurons. And so like, like for example, in the respiratory network, just for sake of continuity, mm-hmm. like a lot of times we use the transcription factor DBX1 is what it's called. So domain homeobox transcription factor type one. It's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. And these cells tend to, I mean, they're, they're kind of all over in the brain, but there's a high concentration of them that tends to migrate towards that part of the brain that's responsible for generating breathing. And so if we have different technologies that can target the DBX1 specific cells, then we can, say, modify the release of serotonin from only the cells that express DBX1. And that's what's that's what's exploited for optogenetics. So you've in your neuromodulation divings, did you see optogenetics in there anywhere? Uh it's possible. Run over it though. <laughs> One of the many different things that you saw. One of many, many different things that I saw. I spent like a good forty five minutes last night just reading up on it, but I don't have a background in anything okay. neuro except for the last episode but you have brain i do have brain so you got all the answers already in there Mm, i have the ability to get the answers i don't have the answers though (laughs) i have the storage space available storage space yeah uh optogenetics though that exploits this these different systems a lot and so basically with the optogenetics you so optogenetics are a way to optically stimulate or inhibit specific neurons based on their genetic makeup. And so... You're talking about through the eyes, correct? No, like you implant a laser. Oh, wow. In the brain? In the brain. 
Okay. Although there's newer ones that are available. I believe it's they're called the crimson variety that you don't actually have to implant the laser down into the brain. You can stimulate through like the ear because it's such a deep red in the infrared range almost mm-hmm. that it can penetrate through tissue. Damn. Yeah. So that's kind of cool, which would be interesting for human applications because now you don't have to implant an actual laser down into the brain. But basically optogenetics, like I said, it's, it's a way to control neurons using lasers. And so you, you take a cell group that you want to target. Let's say you want to target glutamate, glutamate producing neurons. And so you can use a, uh, you can use a transcription factor, uh, V-glute 2, for example, vesicular glutamate transporter type 2. And so neurons that release glutamate, which is your primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, they express this V-glute 2. And so if you do like a thing where you label all the V-glute 2 expressing cells, and you can see all of the glutamate producing cells in the brain. But you can use like a viral targeted approach such that you it, like you inject a virus that then can infect that. So the virus goes and it finds all the cells that are expressing the VGLUT2, and then it transfects into them. So the virus goes and it just goes inside of them. But this virus, you can put a little backpack on it, and you can make it carry a light-sensitive protein, what we call like a channel rhodopsin. Hmm. And so... This comes from, I believe it was, came synthesized originally from the jellyfish. It makes it glow. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And, uh, and then, so it goes in, it, tra- it, it finds that V-glute 2, it jumps into the cell or transfects it. And then because it does that, then it induces the expression of whatever it's carrying. And so that cell now expresses the channel rhodopsin or the light sensitive protein, which is a membrane channel. And then, so that goes and it gets on the membrane of the cell. And so then anytime that you excite that protein, which is excited by light, then it opens up this ion channel that excites the cell. And so that's how you can, let's say, target all the glutamatergic cells in the brain. And you can go in with a laser and go into one specific region, turn on the light. And now we've inserted a special receptor that's only sensitive to light. And now all those cells start going crazy. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's crazy. So that's how optogenetics works. Or there's one called a halo rhodopsin, for example, that inhibits the cells. So you can turn specific areas off. So you'll like this, like one of the practical applications of it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. (laughs) Like how do you actually use it? I mean, we use it to like study... If you stimulate one region of the brain, how does it affect another region? So what's how do these areas functionally affect each other? Mm-hmm. But like for studying cocaine, for example. So like cocaine primarily works through dopaminergic and noradrenergic signaling. Dopamine, norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. But if you want to excite the regions of the brain that are normally excited by cocaine to study addiction, you don't have to necessarily give the cocaine. Because cocaine is just a stimulant that acts on those regions. Yeah. And so we can optogenetically target those regions 
and we can just stimulate them with light and it has the exact same effect as the cocaine, even though there's no cocaine. And so there, there were these classic experiments that were kind of cool where they took rats or it might've been mice, probably mice. Cause it's the optogenetics in rats is still somewhat new and especially in goats. That's for sure. And, uh, so a, a typical paradigm for that is that they, they have a lever and so they have a, you can, you can study the rats and you can have a, or you can study the mice and you can have a tube that goes down into a specific brain region, or you can just have a tube that goes, you know, to their abdomen. And every time that they press the lever, it gives them cocaine. And so you measure the, uh, amount of lever presses over time. And you can see initially the, the mouse like wanders over, presses it once and goes, Oh, okay. And do they, Wait a minute. are they just like licking the cocaine? No, it gets injected directly into them when they press the lever. Oh, okay. So there's just like okay. a lever in in their cage. Mm-hmm. They walk around, they hit the lever. Or when you have that probe that's injecting into their abdomen. Suddenly they get a shot of cocaine and they go, all right, you know, it's party time. Mm-hmm. And then you can look at the amount of lever presses over time. And it just, as you can expect, just goes exponentially yeah. up. So initially the, the mouse presses it like one or two times in the day. And then by the end... Like from the time it wakes up till the time it goes to sleep, it's just nonstop lever pressing. Damn. And so you can see like dependency and, and addiction form, but you can switch it out such that instead of delivering cocaine, all it does is it turns on a light. When it pushes the lever, it turns on a light that stimulates the area of the brain that is normally uh, acted upon by cocaine. And the exact same response happens even though there's no cocaine. Wow. You're just optically stimulating that area of the brain. Mm-hmm. So that's one way you can like use it to study addiction. Yeah. And like, so it gives you some specificity. So that's like a neuromodulation, a neuromodulation tool to really specifically study different circuits or, you know, you can identify different regions you can go in and you can grab a cell, stimulate it, and if it responds, then you know it expresses that factor. And if it doesn't respond, then you know it doesn't. So you can like functionally characterize the brain. Wow. That's crazy. The whole mice experiment. The cocaine thing? The cocaine thing is still kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> that they were just giving mice cocaine like that. Yeah, Did it ever lead to a point where like the mouse would overdose because it just kept pressing the lever? Oh, I don't know. Hmm. I uh, I don't know if that was controlled for. Do you know if they changed environmental factors at all? Like if they had one mouse in a really shitty cage yeah, versus one in like a very comfortable, cozy cage. Did the comfortable, cozy mouse press the lever less times than the uncomfortable mouse? There's interesting stuff on that. I don't know what it is, though. Well, I just remember. I don't. Next time. Next time. I don't know the exacts of it. But yes, there was environmental factors that were assessed and under certain conditions, the the mouse just wouldn't press the lever. Like it didn't need to. Like it didn't need to. Yeah. And the, like addiction didn't form. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember what they were, but I do know that they were looked at. But that was a long time ago that I learned about this paradigm. Wow. How do you feel about cocaine? It's cocaine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a party drug. It's a party drug. Yeah. It's a party drug. People like it. But it's people do it all the time. A lot of the drugs just act like neuromodulators. 
Yeah. They just sort of replace the the endogenous neuromodulators. Yeah, but don't like there's a very negative effect. I mean, outside of the health implications of doing cocaine all the time or whatever drug it may be, but you experience that high and then you experience like an equivalent crash. Oh yeah. Afterwards, which is why people that do you know heroin or meth talk about like they're sick and they don't yeah. they don't do the drug because they need the drug they're doing the drug so that way they can get well and do it to quotes. feel normal yeah they do it to feel normal back to their baseline so they get really high and then there's like you know a uptick and then they crash the same uptick below baseline oh yeah i mean there's because there's dependency that forms right yeah like there's a down regulation of receptors so you need more and more of the stimulus in order to elicit the response it's just like building a tolerance right yeah which is weird i i don't know necessarily what the factors are but like in some neural circuits you get plasticity that potentiates the the network and so if you give a stimulus over time it strengthens the network such that you don't need as much of a stimulus to get the same response but Mm. in some areas like this you get a down regulation of the receptors so that way you need more stimulus in order to get the same response so like in the last episode that we were talking we talked about the heavy in plasticity or the cells that fire together wire together mm-hmm. you know so you're constantly signaling to one cell and it increases the expression of those receptors yeah so then you don't need to signal it as hard to get the same response but there's also the same phenomenon long-term depression which is the exact opposite in what way? So if a cell is not being used, it can downregulate the receptors in order to to keep the function of the circuit the same. But in some areas, there's also the idea that when you stimulate it too much, it downregulates the receptors as well. So you don't get as much of a response anymore. And so like one of the experiments that was looking at serotonin interneurons was looking at the gill withdrawal, uh, withdrawal response from an aplasia. What's that? What is an aplasia? It's like a, it's like a snail or something. Aplasia. Sea slug. It's a sea slug. So instead of worms, oh wow, looking at a sea slug. So in aplasia, this was a classic experiment. I believe it was by Kendall, who wrote like he was one of the pioneers of wrote one of the main textbooks of neuroscience. Okay. Eric Kendall. Um, if it's not Eric Kendall, I apologize. Um, but anyways, the experiment was they have a gill withdrawal reflex. And so if you poke them, they take their gills and they withdraw them because it doesn't want to be poked. Is that a safety mechanism? I assume so. Okay. But if you constantly poke it over time, it desensitizes. Mm. You know, so it's like, poke, 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 poke. Initially it's like retract, retract, retract. And then you keep poking it and it's like, screw you. I'm not doing the trick anymore. Yeah. And so that's a down regulation. It has to do something with serotonergic neurons. I don't know the exact mechanism. I have to look it up, but you know, that's an idea where overstimulation leads to a down regulation of the response. And just to go, you know, psychology on it. That's like the point of exposure therapy, right? I don't know if you... Oh, yeah, I guess that'd be an application of it, right? Yeah. Like, if you're terrified of, um, I don't know, if you're agoraphobic, 
right? Agoraphobic? Agoraphobic. What is that? Uh, where you're scared of, um, like, I think social situations. It's like very heightened social anxiety, basically. Oh, okay. So you get scared to leave the house because of something. You know, you went to a store and you saw a fight and it scared you. So now you're scared to go back to that store. World but star. then you start getting nervous when you go to a different store. And now all stores are off limits. And then slowly but surely you just become a recluse and you're at home. But exposure therapy will put you in those situations repeatedly until you feel safe. And then eventually it gets rid of it. Oh. So that's the same kind of thing, right? I guess. Kind of like a practical application of that same concept yeah. in psychology. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some mechanism that's crossover, but hmm. it's a similar phenomenon. Yeah. Just at a behavioral level. Versus you know, retracting the gills. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Or Learned it's so like... It's like if you, if you're constantly poking someone on their skin, mm-hmm. after a while you won't feel it anymore. Oh yeah. You know, that kind of similar situation. That makes sense though. Yeah. Makes sense. But so I don't know. It's I don't know what necessarily determines which circuits upregulate versus downregulate with overstimulation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure someone has an answer to it. Somebody out there has to. I'm sure someone also has a contradictory evidence. Hey, that's well. the point of science, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, you were asking about the amygdala the other day, weren't you? I was asking about the amygdala. The uh, part of the limbic system? Part of the limbic system and how breathing and controlling your breathing and just breath work in general oh. helps to fight off anxiety or fear or whatever. Regulating your heart rate, which, like, it's all connected, right? Yeah, there's cardiorespiratory coupling. Yeah. Yeah. Because the respiratory centers in the brainstem are very close to the cardiovascular control centers. Yeah, so like your brain talks to your lungs and your lungs talk to your brain. Or, I mean, your heart and lungs have like a two-way road, right? Yeah, there's the mechanical one. So like every time you take a breath in... Your heart rate goes up. Your heart rate goes up, which is thought to be from increased thoracic pressure that then presses on the heart. So like when you breathe in, your chest cavity, your chest wall expands, which then puts pressure on your heart. And theoretically, when you pressure your heart, it beats faster. And then when you exhale that air, your chest wall goes down. Yeah. And then that's released. But there's also like um, different reflexes through like the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. So like there's a herring, it's called the herring Breuer reflex. Um, where every time that your chest wall expands, it starts to activate the diaphragm or excuse you activate the diaphragm to bring in the air to expand the chest naturally, <laughs> naturally. But, um, no, it activates the vagus nerve every time you take a breath in and some of that is thought to be from mechanoreceptors. So receptors that are activated upon mechanical manipulation. Mm-hmm. And when you say mechanical, what exactly are you referring to? Like they're being pressed on. Okay. They're being distorted. Okay. And then also side note, when you say vagus nerve, that's what connects your heart, lungs, gut, everything, correct? Yeah. It's thought of like visceral control mm-hmm. of like gut function and heart. And... Wasn't Charles Darwin the first one to talk about that? Oh, I don't know. He called it something else, but it's now known as like the vagus nerve. That'd be interesting. I think so. Google it. Google it. Charles Darwin, vagus nerve. Yeah, he called it something else. But, you know, anyways, back to your talk. Sorry, I just wanted to clear the air on that for uh, 
me and any other potentially confused listeners. Abstract. Charles Darwin proposed that the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve, emotional facial expressions are evolved, adapt, and serve a crucial communicative function. Mm. Ah, so maybe. I don't know. I was reading reading something about it, though. He had another name for it, and uh, it was interesting. It was in a book I was reading. Interesting. Oh, yeah, but uh, basically as the vagus nerve is stimulated then it activates parts of the brain that then go to shut off respiration. Mm -hmm. And so um, basically the mechanical stretch from the lungs, the chest wall cavity, activate the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve gets active. It activates the part of the brain that is thought to transition you from inspiration to expiration Mm -hmm. and so that it shuts off breathing. So that way it prevents... Barotrauma is what it's called, which is like trauma to the lungs from overinflation. It's one of the things that you have to watch out for with patients on a ventilator. Mm. Okay. And, and so sometimes when you put a patient on a ventilator, you purposefully underinflate the lungs and it'll create elevated CO2 in the body and we call it permissive hypercapnia. And the idea is that it per, even though you're making the patient hypercapnic or elevated CO2 levels, it prevents the lungs from being damaged from just being like blown up. Yeah. Okay. But that's a, a stretch receptor mechanism of the vagus. Oh, but, um, what were we talking about? The, Oh, the amygdala. Yeah. Talking about breathing. I mean, I thought of it for a few different reasons, like emotional regulation, emotional regulation, or, you know, in jujitsu, I'll do like a physiological sigh, a couple of them, like mid roll. If I'm feeling myself get too amped up, and it calms me down immediately. It was also like a shooting tactic. You're running, whatever. You got a full kit on. It's heavy. You're exhausted. And then you have to stop and shoot. And oh. you do some like quick breath work to lower your heart rate, calm yourself down, kind of regulate those emotions. And then you feel fine and you can think clearly again. Oh. So I just wanted to know the connection between all of those things. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's the reason that I brought up the Vegas is that that's one hypothesis for how breathing might be able to tap into some of the cognitive areas. Mm-hmm. So like the idea is that perhaps I'm not even, I'm not going to say yes or no. Cause I don't know. Theoretically. Perhaps there might be evidence that stimulating the vagus nerve could calm you down. The idea behind the hypothesis mainly being that the vagus nerve primarily carries like parasympathetic like activities, which is like your rest and digest and calm down. Yeah. And so since you get activation of it by breathing, if you take deeper breaths, you're going to get greater vagal activation, which might release more parasympathetic neural activity to calm you down. That's one. The other idea is sort of the global synchronization theories of like every time, like if you, like I talked about it in one episode where you, if you stick a probe in most regions of the brain, you can pretty much pick up a respiratory rhythm. Yeah. And you can measure the neurons because the neurons in all the different regions of the brain are not always just like sitting silent and then are just active when you want them to be active. They're always active in different oscillations, different rhythms. 
That was like the myth behind we only use 10% of our brain. Yeah, right? your your whole brain is always doing Go. something. It's yeah. oscillating. No yeah. neural signal is just like quiet. Yeah. Because like in, in, a, in a lot of networks, it's a lot about the synchronization amongst the neurons. So like in a, we call it a half center oscillator. In a, in a perfect half center oscillator, this would be like a network made up of two neurons. One is on and one is off. And then they switch. The other one is on, the other one's off. And if it just goes bing bong, bing bong, bing bong, you have a perfect half center oscillator. Okay. But we don't see, I mean, there are some half center oscillators, but we don't see a lot of that. A lot of them have more of a rotational dynamic. And by that, I just mean that there's ramping up and there's ramping down. And so there's always this rhythm. And so there's different ways, they're called neural manifolds, that you can use to elucidate the degree of the uh rotational dynamics but that's above my pay grade but if a lot of these different respiratory or a lot of these different brain regions are being influenced by the respiratory rate then the underlying respiratory rate how fast you're breathing how slow you're breathing is going to change the excitability of those neurons across all different networks within the brain including the amygdala okay because if you can measure a respiratory rate in the amygdala then every time let's say that if you i don't know what i don't know what it is exactly but let's say that when you inhale let's just say hypothetically that it increases the activity of the neurons in the amygdala when you exhale the opposite occurs it doesn't excite them necessarily enough to always cause an action potential but it changes the threshold for firing. And so you might be more likely in a, in a situation where you're breathing faster, for example, you might be more likely to activate parts of the amygdala because since you're breathing faster, the, it's receiving greater modulation from respiration. And since it's receiving a greater modulation from those respiratory areas, the ner- those neurons are always closer to being fired. And so when that occurs, then you could imagine where breathing faster could increase your likelihood of having an anxiety response, fear and anxiety. Yeah. Because when you stimulate the amygdala, oftentimes you get a fear and anxiety response Yeah. in general. Not always. There's different parts of the amygdala. But I, I, I looked it up a long time ago, and the evidence wasn't so clear-cut because, like, if you stimulate the amygdala – it can shut off breathing. So there's also like this feed forward and feedback loop. Would that be part of like a freeze response then? Oh, that's a good point. I don't know. Where you just shut down completely? I could. I mean, there's other papers that show that when you stimulate the amygdala, it speeds up breathing. Maybe that could be a fight response then. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it depends on the person though, right? I know. You can, that's the problem. You can rationalize it either way. Man, yeah, that makes it tough. You could say that anxiety is being flooded in your body because of amygdala activation. And then that speeds up breathing because it's an anticipation of a response that's going to require more oxygen, such as flight. But you could also say that it shuts off respiration in a sort of a feedback mechanism to prevent the anxiety from happening, to slow your breathing. So there'd be no way to do this in like a controlled setting. You'd have to take multiple people put them in the exact same situation and hope that they respond the same in every situation and don't 
develop that gills withdrawal reflex or whatever you called it <laughs> where they're just numb to the stimulation and they're like oh maybe it's not that scary the sea slugs the sea slugs yeah that's a interesting thing i mean it's hard in humans right because unless there's some sort of epilepsy that allows you to get access to the amygdala it's a deep structure mm-hmm. like we can't just shove a probe in there because like what's difficult in even in animal studies if you want to target a deep structure be the hippocampus or the amygdala or whatever in your limbic system or something like that mm-hmm. like you got to jam that probe through the other areas of the brain yeah so like you're you're ablating you're killing off those areas because you're just jamming a shish kebab yeah through them it was kind of like with the goats when we wanted to get to the brainstem we had to go a lot of times through the cerebellum which like controls your motor motor coordination and so we'd have these goats that like forgot how to walk for a little bit because we had to jam the microdialysis probe through the cerebellum in order to get to the brainstem or they would just like sit like dogs wow. which goats don't normally sit like dogs so then you just struggle to measure anything really I mean, you can. It's just a, it's a confounding factor. Yeah. You know. So if you try to do the same thing in humans, for example, one, you're jamming it through other you're parts Phineas of the brain. Phineas gauging it, yeah. Yeah, Phineas gauging the shit out of it. Yeah. And then you don't really know what response to expect even. Yeah. I mean, there's because it's always going to be a confounding factor. Hmm. Is the response because I shish kebabed the half of the brain or is it because I manipulated the area that I'm down into? You can control for it. You can come in from different angles. But still. I mean, you have a new, what do you call it, a confounding factor? Yeah. You have a new one for every time. Yeah. So you interpret the results the best you can. But like a lot of the studies on the amygdala stuff were from, I believe it's temporal lobe epilepsy patients that had the part of the brain removed that contained some of the amygdala if it was epileptic. And so then we can see how the patients respond following the removal of either partial or the whole amygdala amygdalectomy amygdalectomy that's what it's called when you take it out ectomy just means you got it removed so you can put anything you want before ectomy fast yeah that's one (laughs) um it's not really removal more of a snip anyways snipectomy um, on both sides vast deference ectomy you can notice a a vast difference (laughs) yeah vast difference after your vasectomy yes um you can see activity in the amygdala with like ct scans and stuff what right yeah or okay. fmris do you know who alex honnold is who alex honnold no idea that crazy free climber oh he climbed up uh what is it el cap oh yeah 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 he had that video yeah the video in the movie free solo it's Was like that the guy that fell uh no oh that was one of his climbing partners so alex honnold is still thriving but i saw i don't know a youtube interview or something like that and they noticed that his amygdala like doesn't light up at all really almost ever it's like he doesn't experience fear in the same way which is why he's probably able to do all of these things interesting so he just like he says that he's scared but when they look at it i think it was a ct scan or yeah whatever the hell they do to check yeah um they didn't notice that much activity in there huh I mean, it would make sense. Yeah. I mean, most of us, if you climbed up El Cap and you looked down, like, there would be visceral voiding out of orifices. Oh, dude, if I stood on top of a lifted F-250, I'd get nervous, for sure. <laughs> and that's not even that high, but I'd be like, God, I could bust an ankle. I got 
I wonder yeah, like the extent that. that it's predetermined or the extent of plasticity in that circuit. Like, let's say, like Could for example, both, right? like uh, in combat sports, mm-hmm. like the one of the biggest things, I, I guess one of the biggest uh, upsides of learning a combat sport isn't necessarily that you're ever going to have to use it, but that you know you can use it. Yeah, and it makes you calmer in those situations. Right, and so you remain calm. And so situations that normally seemed threatening may not seem so threatening because you at least know that if something were to happen, you could handle yourself. Yeah. To an extent. You could at least keep yourself alive. Yeah, like in your first uh, competition. Have you competed more than once? Yeah. Okay. In your first one, were you super nervous stepping up to the mask first time? Oh, yeah. Like adrenaline dump, shaking, everything. Oh, yeah, your forearms lock up, and yeah, you just can't really function. You're stiff. Yeah. Was it better the second match? Yeah, oh yeah and you realize then, you weren't gonna die yeah and then what how many times have you competed uh two two times so but, the second so, tournament yeah, like five or six matches each or whatever i was like round robin uh it was just a elimination bracket okay okay um so your second tournament did you experience the same sort of adrenaline dump or how would you compare it to the first tournaments like through each match so you got 20 oh. percent better I each think it match. was a different I think it was a different type of adrenaline dump. First, first one was like an adrenaline dump because I don't want to get murdered. I don't want to get, scared, right? yeah, I don't want to get euthanized on the mat. Yeah, of course. But like the second time it was more of, I don't want to look like an idiot because I should have been getting better. Yeah. You know? So it was like similar anxiety, but it was a different reason. Cause theoretically you should have gotten better and I did, but yeah. Know still still but i wonder but either way it would be some sort of amygdala amygdala response but that would be you know plasticity over just being naturally born with it yeah that's what i mean like it's obviously plastic yeah but i wonder you know in if there's conditions or if there's individuals that have less plasticity to that like for most people if you teach them a combat sport they have less anxiety in most situations. It's like one of the known factors that happens. Yeah. I haven't been scared to walk around at night and I don't know how long. Yeah. Or even in social situations. And in social situations at the bar, somebody raises their voice. It's not like, oh, I can beat the shit out of this guy. That's not my thought process. My thought process is just like. Yeah. You just got sort of numb to these things now. Yeah. Your like, boss is yelling at you or something. It's just like. Oh, I don't care. Marine Corps did that for me, though. You could say whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, I have 100% heard worse. Way worse than that. Um, I do think, though, like all of the training in the Marine Corps helped with that as well. Like, I haven't competed yet. February 11th, I think I'm doing Revolution. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you'll be there or not. Probably. Probably. I'll see you there. Um, I've trained with plenty of people that are better than me, higher belts. I mean, obviously, it's in the gym, so it's not the same thing. But I don't think I've ever been nervous to roll. Yeah. I've never walked into a role feeling nervous. Any belt doesn't matter. Except your first time rolling. Your first time rolling. My first time rolling, was I nervous? Yeah. Oh, man, I was 18 first time I trained. See? But I don't remember being nervous. Oh, that's true. It's in a controlled setting. It's in a controlled setting, but like... State dependency. State dependency. That's a big thing. I have wrestled with friends and whatnot, just being out. And like, I don't train Nogi, so I don't know jack shit about Nogi. But I 
do the same moves that I could do in gi just with different grips. Yeah. So it's like my brain became plastic in that sense and never felt nervous. Also never felt nervous with people watching. Yeah. So is that like a born with it thing or is that a plasticity thing? Maybe. I mean, some people just have less amygdala activation at baseline and when they're in situations. So that's like the genetic comp like component of it. Probably Alex Honnold was just born. Just born without any real amygdala response. But, I, you know, what I'm curious is, is what is the limit to that response? Or what is the limit to the adaptation and the amygdala response? Like at what point would he actually feel fear? Yeah. Man. And can you, like, how, what, how, what is the limit of being able to stretch that desensitization? Dude, I think you're climbing El Cap, and there's a portion of El Cap where he has to like kick out and his foot has to catch on a very tiny ledge. And if he misses it, he dies. And when he was training with the ropes, cause he, you know, had worked this route multiple times to get a feel for it and training in gyms and setting it all up. Uh, he failed a lot of times. Yeah. And so maybe there was some fear there that might've, you know, prevented him from fumbling his foothold. But I feel like that's about as scary as you can get. Huh. And nothing. Here's a similar line of thinking. Mm -hmm. Something that I've been curious about is the transition from fight or flight state to just a catatonic state where you give up. So like you have an ingrowing, like there's some weird responses that you have that are just like retained within our brain from our reptilian origins. Yeah. So like we have the dive reflex, for example, if you make your face really cold, like your heart rate drops to really slow. Mm -hmm. And the idea of it, why we have it, who knows, but the idea is that you can survive longer if you get trapped under the ice kind of thing. That makes sense. I mean, it, I think it's a convenient explanation, but I don't, my whole some truth though. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily why, you know, logically that, that we have it, but I mean, there's a lot of confusion around the reptilian brain though. Yeah, exactly. So. But, but you know, we obviously have our fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. We get nervous. We get, you know, a big dump of norepinephrine, something like that. And then that increases our heart rate, increases our blood pressure, shuttles blood to the muscles and away from things like the stomach. And, um, so it primes us in order to get away and yeah. it also like changes it like dilates our eyes so that way we can see better yeah things like that um but if you're getting mauled by a grizzly bear mm -hmm. you have a mechanism in place i don't know if there's a name for it but you have a mechanism in place where you essentially get massive activation of a region called periaqueductal gray which is a lot involved with reducing pain so there's some chronic pain therapies that are targeting the periaqueduct of gray, which is a bunch of neurons that descend and also have ascending input, but they, they essentially send down to control or excuse me, I guess they would go up. I don't know. I'd have to look at the connectivity. Yeah. Whatever. I'm a fraud. Total fraud. Total neuroscience fraud. But, um, but they modulate how much pain that we experience. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of like inner neurons in there that essentially pain fibers run through the periaqueductal gray. Yeah. And even if you stimulate a pain fiber in your arm, like you don't feel it until that signal reaches your brain. Yeah. 
And so if you stop the signal before it reaches the brain, you wouldn't feel the pain. And so periaqueductal gray has a lot of those um, intermediate synapses where it can relatively, air quotes, choose which pain signals are sent up. Yeah. And so it also has functions in like heart rate and blood pressure. It can modulate those things as well. And uh, you have a response, like if you're getting mauled from a grizzly bear, you essentially just get put into like a mild coma almost. So you don't feel anything. Yeah. Your blood pressure just like drops. So you go from this super heightened fight or flight response to all of a sudden system shutdown. So that way you don't feel anything as you're being killed. Yeah. And so I wonder if like, it's sort of super interesting why that system would even exist, but at what point does it transition and what is the stimulus that actually causes the transition from super heightened state of arousal and acuity to all of a sudden the opposite. So it's almost like you have your fight or flight response, but if it gets so great, it transitions to a give up response. And there has to be something that triggers that switch. Because the main purpose of that is to just stop pain, right? Yeah, so you can just die. But they don't necessarily have to be opposites, right? I mean, that happens in combat all the time. People get shot and they have no idea that they got shot because they're just yeah, that's a different on such an adrenaline high. So that wouldn't be the same thing here. I mean, it's it's a similar pathways are involved, I guess. Yeah. But if you're like in a super fight or flight response, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily feel pain either. That's fair. You know. That's fair. But there is a switch where all of a sudden you go from super hyper aroused to just like coma. So maybe it's not the same thing, but from a trauma perspective, I know that people who repeatedly go through, you know, the same exact trauma, yeah, uh, they'll develop that same kind of thing where it doesn't, you know, yeah, do learned helplessness. Yeah, learned helplessness. That's exactly what it is. They don't experience it anymore. It's like useless. And I know that that's sort of a, I think, a tactic in like the CIA. If you get captured, you just keep telling yourself that this pain is permanent. You're never going to get out of it. Nobody's ever going to help you. And you have to live with this pain forever. And over time, you convince yourself that it's true. And then you don't necessarily experience the pain anymore. Oh, weird. And of course, I don't know how well that works. I don't know. I've never been tortured like that. So I don't know. But pretty sure that that's, you know, uh, in the training, if you get captured as like a CIA field agent, field operative, whatever you want to call it. Weird. But it's meant to, yeah, numb them and put them in that state. So that way they don't give up any secrets because... You can rip a fucking toe off and you're not going to feel it anymore. <laughs> I just think of like those videos you see on like the uh, the Sierra Plains and there's a, a lion going after, I don't know if lions are in the Sierra Plains, but whatever. You get the idea. In I the bush. About. Yep. Out in the bush. Out in the bush, there's a lion chasing down a wildebeest or something. Mm-hmm. And initially when it gets its paws around it, the wildebeest is freaking out, fighting for its life. Oh, yeah. But then you see the videos once it's caught, the wildebeest is still alive. They're just laying there, though. They're just laying there, and they're getting six lions maul them. Yeah, as the lions are literally just ripping its flesh off, Mm -hmm. and it's just laying there. It's just it's given up. Yeah. And so there has to be something that switches because your normal pain response would almost autonomically make you move. Yeah. Like, you can't override that. It's just reflex. You ever step on a Lego? Yeah, exactly. You lift your foot real quick. Real quick. And I imagine when a lion is biting your leg off, 
it's going to stimulate it to move. Yeah, it's like touching a hot stove. You pull yeah. your fingers back immediately. You don't just sit there. So what would be really cool is, so there are, it's questionably, it's questionable ethically, but there are studies that you can do. And we actually have the software and the capability of doing it in a lab where you can, where you can test mice, their fear response from like a bird. And so you can like put a video of a bird that's like hovering Mm -hmm. above a mouse in a cage and you can use like a i think it's sonogram i don't remember what it's called but basically you can use like an ultrasonic uh sensor that picks up mouse screams okay and and then you can also measure its neural activity you just put a little helmet on it Mm -hmm. but i wonder if we measured the uh the activation of the brain regions when it has that sort of hawk swooping stimulus versus if we combined that with something grabbing it. Like a pinch, like a small clamp that grabs it to or stimulate Or just like something hawk. like a claw that just mm-hmm. snatches it. So all of a sudden you see how the mouse responds to the threat and then you see how it responds to being caught. Because I think fundamentally those are two very different phenomena. Yeah. Because there's you, you almost you get rid of the anticipation. Yeah, you know, and I feel like the anticipation is almost worse. Right. You know. Right, because you, you you originally have anticipation. This hawk is coming after me, and then suddenly it grabs it. Now there's no anticipation anymore. It's no, got gotcha. you. You're stuck with it. And now like, it's, what's your response? It's got to be a different state. Yeah. It's almost. It's well, maybe it's not almost, but it's kind of like like newborns or neonatal mice when they're separated from their mothers. They cry, mm-hmm. obviously. Of course. But when the mother is then sensed, either through smell or through sight or whatever, the crying actually intensifies mm. until it's comforted. That's interesting. So it goes from this sort of longing response of, I want my mother. And then all of a sudden, it finally gets the stimulus that the mother is present. And then the crying intensifies because it switches over to a more of anticipation. Now you're anticipating a response mm. rather than just longing for the response. Yeah. So that would be an interesting study. Yeah. I would love to see it. You got to figure out how to make like a really high speed, you know, claw grabber games. Yeah. And then combine that with a hawk swooping video on a mouse that has measured neural activity. You can do that. And the claw, would the claw have to be? We can put them on a, a ball. A lot of times with the mice, if you want them free roaming, mm-hmm. you put them on a ball that just moves freely. Mm-hmm. But the ball is like in a fixed position in space, but it's allowed to just freely rotate. Like a gyroscope kind of thing? Yes. Okay. Gyroscope. There we go. And uh, you can put them on there. You can show them the video and then you can just drop the arm and grab it. What if you built a little backpack, like a suit, that was around them all the time? Constricted. Constricted, but they get used to it, so they ignore that stimulus of, you know, wearing a sweater, basically. These cute little mice in sweaters. But you have... Goats in sweaters. You could have goats in sweaters. Cloth wears a sweater. Does he really? All the time. He's a little dog, man. He needs help. (laughs) Anyways, you have a little, like, sweater on him, and then... 
the sweater could have metal arms in it that stimulate the clamp when the hawk swoops in. Oh, that'd be a good one too. Because then you could actually, they could feel it, they'd be used to it, and you could let them just roam freely, and you could see their reaction. Whether because if you had something, at least in my mind, if you had something that actually grabbed them, yeah, it might not be the same response. Oh, I see. You know, because then they can't move freely. But you could check if they can move freely. If it's a backpack, are they just going to keep running? Ah. Or if it actually picks them up, do their legs just, you know, not work? Do huh. they not try and run because all of a sudden they're elevated off the ground and they have no footing under them? You could see if, like, complete prevention of movement reduces the response. Or just hold them down. Yeah. Like, if there's, like, if they sense that the opportunity to run away or to fight is still there, mm-hmm. like, they have free limb movement. Yeah. Are they going to fight? Versus if you have something that just like grabs all of their limbs and them at the same time. It just pins them. It pins them. Does it reduce it? I'm thinking of like a dog. Yeah. Like, a, you know, if a dog goes rabid or something like that, you can hold it down mm-hmm. and it'll, if you get it tight enough and you reduce all of its ability to fight back, yeah, it'll eventually just succumb to, to you holding it. Yeah, of course. But if it still has the ability to move its legs and stuff like that, it'll and still turn around and bite, it'll still keep doing so. Yeah. Got a whole research program up here. Yeah. Grant. I don't have the facilities for that. We got to get that funded. (laughs) DARPA. It would be interesting to learn about, though. It would be useful for, like, defense funding and stuff like that. Defense funding, I think, would be useful for, like we talked about, learned helplessness. Yeah. Therapeutic uses in it. You know, at what point can you stimulate? Because if you learn what causes that, learned helplessness yeah you could learn how to prevent it potentially or how to fix it yeah or maybe you don't want to unlearn it maybe you don't want to unlearn it maybe it's a true survival mechanism but you know some people really do get caught up in that learned helplessness and their lives are miserable because of it yeah we could we could put it in all the antelope and watch them just fight it would be crazy i bet you the lion population would go down they'd be fighting back or we'd have some super lions that would then emerge. Oh, yeah. Evolution would be crazy watching that. Some deep stuff. That's crazy. Deep stuff. If you do that study, I want I want in on it. I don't know how I can help. I'll hold the flashlight. <laughs> You'll be research tech. <laughs> yeah, I'll be the research tech. I'll hold the flashlight while you yell at me. I don't care. You'll Just... be holding the animals. You'll be... Yeah. I, we'll just have a, a pen. Of different animals, and you'll have to jump in and try to hold them down. I'll just wear feathers and chase mice around until I grab one. We'll see what happens. (laughs) I got big hands, so I can just swoop them up, prevent all movement. I can do a little pinch. We'll start with, like, a gerbil. Yeah. And, like, we'll do hamsters, and then we'll do some guinea pigs, and then, like, some mice and goats and rabbits. Mm -hmm. And then, once you get good, we'll put you in there with, like, a cane corso. And have you? I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> I'm gonna triangle that thing so quick. <laughs> Don't care. See if it has. A... That'd be cool though. If oh, I wonder if the prey animals mm. have a much quicker or much lower threshold for that transition to helplessness. Probably. Versus, well, or maybe not. Or you know, versus a predatory type of animal. I don't know. I could see it going both ways because a, a prey animal is used to having to run for its life. Yeah. Whereas a predator isn't necessarily having to run for its life. Yeah, but if you defeat a predator, they are very defeated. 
Right. So maybe like, it's the other way around. Maybe it's two lions fight and one gets kicked out of the pride. That lion's probably just going to starve to death because it gets so weak. Yeah. Can't hunt. It's not as efficient. Female lions don't want it. Like you crush its soul. Yeah. Because it got defeated. So if you took something that's used to being apex in its own right. Yeah. And you take that away from it. Until you can't kill it. Those are the scariest ones. Yeah. No matter what you do, you're not going to kill it. Mm-hmm. You can kick it out of the pride. doesn't matter. Some some of those things are just built different. That's what I'm saying. Wow. Mentality. Mentality is everything. It's already been almost an hour and a half. Yeah, we are flying through these. We should probably wrap this one up, huh? Probably should. Neuromodulation, amygdala, learned helplessness. Mice. Mice, Backpacks. lions, antelopes, aplasia. Aplasia? It ranged. It ranged in this one. We did. It was a good one. It was a good one. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. And uh, for all of you listening, www.theneuronetwork.org for links to the podcast, although I'm sure you know where the podcast is by now if that's where you found your source to the link. Uh, There's a contact form if you have any questions or anything like that or if you want to be on the show or just tell us random facts. That'd be kind of cool. Rate the show, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, any podcast player, I think. We're pretty much on all of them. And follow the show. We're starting to get a following, so that's kind of cool. It's going up. It's going up. Anyways, enjoy the weekend. I guess I publish these on Monday, so. Enjoy your week. It is Friday for us, though. It's Friday for us. It'll be published on Monday, so enjoy your week. Okay. Bye.